If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1, that's page 856 in the Pew Bibles, which are those black Bibles in front of you. Luke, chapter 1. I used to think it was cool to hate on Christmas. I used to pride myself about not putting any effort into decorating and not caring about all the music and lights and commercialization. I mean, I've been a Christian, you know, growing up in church for as long as I, as I can remember. Um, but for some reason, I just thought it was cool in my younger adult years um, to kind of make fun of all the Christmas stuff. But then something happened to me. We started having kids. If you have kids, you know it's pretty much impossible to ignore Christmas. In fact, it's pretty much impossible to not get excited about the holidays when you see their, their, uh, their excitement building and their little traditions that we can start for them to participate in and the getting the chance to remind your kids over and over about the true meaning of Christmas and what, how it points to Jesus and all of that. Um, I really look forward to the holidays. Um, what's strange to me is that a week from now, which will be Christmas Day, there will be millions of people celebrating the birth of a person that they don't even claim to follow or really believe in. A few years ago, I was working at my old job. I attended a work Christmas party. It was for the school that I worked for. A few of the staff I worked with found out I could play guitar, so they roped me into playing a few Christmas songs. Uh, Towards the end of the party, there were a number of students and staff members that wanted to come up on the stage and sing some Christmas songs with me. And One of the staff members was a woman I worked with. She had, I had a few spiritual conversations with her when I worked there. She claimed to be an atheist or at least an agnostic. She was extremely uh, politically liberal. She had been openly hostile towards religion um, online and even in person at times. She was certainly against anything overtly Christian being talked about or taught in schools. But after singing a few generic Christmas songs like, Holly Jolly Christmas and Winter Wonderland, um, she asked me a question. She said, Caleb, do you know Silent Night? And I paused for a second because I thought she was joking, but she wasn't. She wanted to sing Silent Night. So we all sang the verse, the first verse of Silent Night a couple times. That's usually all people really know. And I watched her as she sang it. She sang it quite seriously with what seemed to be heartfelt emotion. The song clearly meant something to her. Now, Silent Night is certainly not the most robustly theological, um, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated Christmas song out there, right? But let's remind ourselves of what the first verse of Silent Night is. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin... Mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. So here's a song that affirms the holiness of baby Jesus and the virgin birth. Both of those things, this woman would certainly not actually believe happened, and yet here she was singing it. Now, this is what we see going on around us every year come Christmas time, is it not? We see it especially in our pop culture. People want to hold on to Christmas. So they, we reduce it down to something more manageable, right? So Christmas becomes about spending time with family or getting into the Christmas spirit, whatever that is, or believing in Santa or leaving the North Pole to find your real dad who lives in New York and writes children's books and he's on the naughty list, Right? Um, these are the Christmas movies of our generation. And Linus from Charlie Brown is the only movie character in all of history who actually gets Christmas right, if you've seen Charlie Brown Christmas. Of course, our culture loves the commercialization of of Christmas. Retail stores love it. Restaurants love it. Everywhere you shop online is having a Christmas sale, Christmas deals. Everywhere you look, there's Christmas decorations, Christmas trees, Christmas parties, Christmas cookies, Christmas songs, and ugly Christmas sweaters. 
Our culture loves Christmas, but it has very little interest in Christ. Baby Jesus is the elephant in the room. Everyone knows he's there. Most people know the story. Most people know where Christmas comes from, how it started, what it means, but no one really wants to talk about it. It's as if the world is staring at Jesus in the face while at the same time pretending he doesn't really exist. But this should not surprise us. After all, that's what the world has always done with Christ. It shouldn't surprise us that our unbelieving family members and friends want to celebrate Christmas while leaving Christ out of it. In fact, we should expect that. But what we, what we must be careful about is that we do not do the same thing. Because if you're anything like me, you have a tendency to buy into some of the superficiality. This is something I battle with every year. Even as a Christian, I have to fight to remember what makes the birth of Christ so spectacular. I have to battle this. I have to force myself to remember what makes the birth of Christ so spectacular. So often, the reason we remain unaffected by spiritual truths is because we don't spend time meditating upon them. We miss the change of heart that comes from God's Word because we read it too quickly. We move on to something else. We get distracted. We don't spend enough time meditating on what God has done and said. So today, I want to do just that. I want us to meditate on Mary's song. How did Mary, the mother of Jesus, think about the baby in her belly? What did that baby mean to her? We can know the answer to that question because Mary actually sang a song about it. It's called the Magnificat. It's not a fantastic cat, the Magnificat. It's called the Magnificat. It's found in Luke chapter 1. There's three things I want us to think about today. I want us to meditate on these things in preparing our hearts for this week leading up to Christmas. The three things are my three points. God's imminence to the humble, God's judgment on the ungodly, and God's faithfulness to his covenant. So turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 39. Luke 1, 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy." And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and return to her home. The first thing I want us to to meditate upon today is God's imminence to the humble. God's imminence to the humble. This word imminence, it means existing or operating within something, okay? It can also refer to God's nearness or closeness. When we say something is imminent, we say that it's very close. In fact, it it may already be here. So God's imminence to the humble, Where do we see God's imminence in this passage? We see it in the role of the Holy Spirit. First, we see that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 41. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Who's the baby in Elizabeth's womb? It's John the Baptist, right? Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
This story of baby John leaping in the womb has always seemed strange to me. Why does Luke tell us about this? It's just kind of weird, right? I mean, every, any woman who's been pregnant has had a baby kick her, right? When they get really pregnant, you can see the kicks. That's really weird. Um, it's like this alien in there trying to get out. Um, but, uh, but I've never heard any woman say, this, he's filled with the Spirit, right? I mean, I just never heard anyone interpret a baby kicking uh, in the womb this way. Yet, this is what Luke tells us, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is how Luke um, explains to us this event. He tells us the story to confirm God's earlier promise to Zechariah. Look back in verse 13 of chapter 1. The angel Gabriel tells Zechariah this promise. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. You shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So Luke tells us this in order to prove that God's promise through the angel Gabriel came to pass. We can be confident that this leaping in the womb, whatever that was, was the Holy Spirit working in the life of John as a preborn child. So Elizabeth and Mary and Luke all understand John leaping in the womb as an indication of him being filled with the Spirit just as Gabriel promised. So note the work of the Holy Spirit in this story. First, the angel Gabriel promises that John would be filled with the Spirit. When Mary visits Elizabeth, baby John kicks her in the stomach. Elizabeth is then filled with the Holy Spirit and pronounces her blessing upon Mary. Let's not forget about the most significant work of the Spirit in this entire story, the conception of Jesus Christ himself in the womb of Mary. Verse 35 tells us this miraculous conception is also the work of the Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is mentioned four times in the first chapter of Luke and is mentioned seven times in the birth narratives as a whole. Luke refers to the Holy Spirit more than any other gospel writer. But here, in the birth narrative, we cannot escape the fact that the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in the lives of Elizabeth, Mary, John, and Jesus. And he's, he is that way in order to bring about God's purpose. God accomplishes his redemptive plan through the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Church, this is a divine and supernatural mystery. We don't understand all about how this happens. But this mystery should be one that gives us great comfort today. The same spirit that filled baby John and Elizabeth, the same spirit that conceived baby Jesus in Mary's womb is the same spirit that is with you and me. We have the very presence of God himself with us. He is imminent. He is near to us. He is with us, among us, in us. He is at work right now in your heart to bring about greater faith and deeper love for Christ. He's at work in your heart to give you strength to turn from sin and trust God and to believe his word and to love your neighbor. But that's not all. Just as the Holy Spirit brought about the actual events in the lives of Elizabeth and Mary, so he is at work in the events in your life. Your circumstances that you are in right now are no less inspired by the Holy Spirit than the conception of Christ. Nothing in your life is happening by accident. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings every person, every conversation, every trial, every temptation into your life for His good and holy purposes. We must see our lives this way. Luke saw the events this way. Mary saw these events this way. Elizabeth saw these these events this way. The Holy Spirit was orchestrating and working all of God's plan and purposes out according to God's plan. 
So this Christmas, may we marvel at the work of the Holy Spirit. God is near to us. He's in us, and He's at work. But as we, as we remember God's imminence, we must not forget what makes His imminence so astounding. Look in verse 49. We're going to jump down into Mary's actual song for a moment here. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. It would be very easy for us to acknowledge God's nearness while forgetting there's a problem here that God cannot actually be near to us, right? He's holy. He is totally free from sin and without error. He cannot sin. Not only is he completely sinless, he actually hates sin, and he will destroy those who rebel against him. This is what it means for God to be God. Sometimes I think we have this kind of Ned Flanders view of God. This is probably an old illustration. If you've, most of you have probably never seen The Simpsons. But Ned Flanders, he's the, the friendly neighbor to the Simpsons, right? Like God is over there and he's a really good guy and we know that he's a really good guy, but he's also really nice, right? And he's not really that concerned with my sin. After all, he's just so nice all the time. But church, we must remember this. God created all people so that we would worship him more than anything. Second, all people have rebelled against him, and we've chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator. And third, because of our sin, we deserve God's judgment and his wrath. He is holy. He cannot be near us. He cannot be near us unless he deals with our sin, right? We will either be destroyed for our sin or someone has come to take the punishment for our sin for us. This is what makes God's nearness so incredible. For Mary to acknowledge God's nearness and God's holiness ought to make us scratch our, our heads and ask, how can this be? As Christians, we know that it can only happen because of what Mary's baby would accomplish. The only reason God's Spirit can dwell in us is because Christ came to make us holy. He came to deal with our sin. This baby would grow up without sin and die for his people and rise from the dead. And those who have faith in him, his righteous life becomes theirs. And their sins are placed on him. And because of that, God's Spirit finds a home in us. So we see that God is imminent. He is near to us. But what, what about this characteristic of humility? God is imminent to the humble. First, we see Elizabeth's humility. We see it in verses 41 through 45. Look what Elizabeth, what Elizabeth says. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with this, the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth sees herself as unworthy of God's favor. She doesn't even consider herself worthy to be in the presence of the unborn Messiah. Elizabeth knows that she, of all people, does not deserve anything good from the Lord. Remember what we know about Elizabeth. She had been barren her entire life. She was now old and advanced in years. She had lived a lifetime probably of shame and embarrassment. As a woman in that culture, if you could not have children, you were considered incomplete or possibly even cursed by God. Elizabeth, no doubt, had lived in disappointment and frustration due to her inability to have children. But here, in her old age, not only has God blessed her with a child, she actually holds in her womb the one who would prepare the way 
for the coming of the Messiah. And now she's in the very presence of that Messiah. And her attitude is one of humility and deference. She points to her own unworthiness and to the blessing that Mary has received. She reminds Mary of how she has been abundantly favored by God. And this is what humility does, church. It points away from yourself and puts the focus and glory on someone else. It does not seek glory. It does not revel in glory. It does not, does not seek attention, but it rather points away. It says, look over there. Look at what God has done. Look at what that person is doing. This is what humility does. Where else do we see humility? We see it in Mary. What can we say about Mary's humility? Let's look at the song that that she sings. Look at verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. First, Mary recognizes God as her Savior. Now, what kind of person needs, a, needs saving? Only those in great need, right? Specifically, sinners. Mary sees herself as a sinner in need of a Savior. There can be no humility where there is no acknowledgement and confession of sin. Second, we see the Lord has looked on Mary's humble estate. This is a reference to her status as a person in that society. Remember what we know about Mary. She was a woman. Women typically were not highly thought of. They certainly were not as well educated as men in that society. She likely came from a poor family. And she had become pregnant before she was married. We know that her own fiancé had planned to divorce her quietly. Imagine the many people who did not believe Mary's story. About the angel's visit. I mean, come on. <laughs> Would you? I wouldn't. I, I hardly believe anything anyone tells me, ever. I mean, this girl, she's probably in her teens, comes and says she's pregnant. Oh, and an angel came to me and said, I'm going to give birth to the Messiah, and I'm actually still a virgin. No, 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 you're not. We all know you're lying, right? I mean, imagine the shame that she, she would have felt. Third, Mary calls herself God's servant. Some translations say bondservant or even slave. Mary sees herself as an instrument to be used by God for his purposes. She does not argue with God. She does not disbelieve his goodness. She is God's servant. Whatever you will, I'm okay with that. Mary embodies what we read in Psalm 84, which says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. She would rather be a servant than to be one who is highly exalted. Fourth, Mary points away from herself to what God has done for her. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed she doesn't say that to magnify herself, because what does she say next? For he has done mighty, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She points away from herself to the glory, to the might and the holiness of God. Mary knows that the blessing she has received is a result of the mighty hand of God. She's not exalting herself, she's rejoicing in the favor she has received. And she wants the world to know that her blessing is a result of God's power, not of her own personal social status, not because of any accomplishment that she has done, but because of God's favor alone. This is what humility does. Humility does not resist the blessing of God. It gladly receives God's favor and then magnifies the source of that blessing. We're not humble when we say, when we're unwilling to receive good things from the Lord. That's not humility. That's self-sufficiency. 
Humility receives grace, receives blessing, receives favor, and then points to the source of that blessing and says, look at that. Isn't he so good to me? Why would this God ever bless me in this way? I see that when I look at my wife and my kids. I don't deserve what I've been given. But humility, humility doesn't say, I, I, don't, I can't have these things. Humility embraces them and says, look at how God has blessed me. Points to the source. Let this be an example to us as well, church. When we receive favor from the Lord, how should we respond? What's the attitude of your heart when you remember God's grace? Is it no big deal? Has his mercy become dull to you? Is that because you think you deserve it? Is it because you have forgotten how sinful you are? Is it because you've forgotten how holy he is? Take some time today, this week. Ask God to work a new kind of humility in your life. As you celebrate this Christmas this week with friends and family, spend time confessing your sins, meditating on your own unworthiness. No one in the world deserves any favor from God. And yet the birth of Christ reminds us that God chose to come near to us. He's imminent. May we marvel at his goodness. Now, before we move on to the next point, we should take a moment to address the misconceptions surrounding Mary, the mother of Jesus. Unfortunately, throughout history, the Catholic Church has come up with what are many false teachings of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to bring these up. I'm not going to address each, each one, you know, Hopefully, um, we, can, we are theologically informed enough to recognize these as false teachings. But I do think that they need to be mentioned because there is so much confusion surrounding Christmas and Mary and the virgin birth and things like that. So the, the first false teaching that, that is oftentimes included when, when people talk about Mary is, the, is what's called the Immaculate Conception. This is a doctrine that teaches that Mary was actually sinless herself. This is an established doctrine of Roman Catholicism. They would say that in order for Jesus to be sinless, he had to have been born of a woman who was also without sin. Okay, so that's where this idea comes from, the immaculate conception. When we hear those terms, this means that Mary herself was without sin. The second is Mary's perpetual virginity. This doctrine states that Mary continued in a perpetual state of virginity throughout her life. This is also established teaching in the Catholic Church that Mary, um, after she gave birth to Christ, she never, um, from that point on in the rest of her life, never had any sexual relations, right? So she was perpetually a virgin. Um, Again, there's a number of biblical passages that would argue against that. The third is what's called the assumption of Mary. This is the teaching that Mary did not die a physical death, but was taken up or assumed to heaven in bodily form to be with the risen Christ. Again, this is settled Catholic teaching. Uh, You're not going to find that teaching in Scripture. And the last false teaching is actually not established Catholic teaching, but has been proposed and debated among Catholic leaders for centuries. This is the teaching that Mary is actually a co-redeemer with Christ. So they kind of take these other teachings to the next level and, and would say that Mary actually becomes the mediator between Christ and man. Since she was intimately involved in his conception, birth, mystery, and uh, ministry, and present with him at his crucifixion, Christians should understand Mary as actually participating in the redemptive work with Christ. And so, uh, that's not established Catholic teaching, but many have proposed it throughout the centuries. Now, like I said, we don't have time to address all of them. Hopefully, we can recognize them pretty immediately as... There's something not right here, okay, when we hear these things. Um, 
But all of these teachings have led to wide misunderstanding and deception among Catholics and Protestants throughout history. This is why we see people praying to Mary, making statues to Mary, even offering sacrifices in some cultures to Mary. These teachings have led to widespread abuse and superstition. Um, Now, while Mary was certainly unique in her work as the mother of Christ, right? There's no other, there's not going to be another Mary, okay? Only one woman can give birth to the Messiah. There's simply no indication in Scripture that she was sinless. There's no indication that she remained a virgin her entire life. In fact, there are references to quite the opposite. And the Bible says nothing about Mary being taken up into heaven before her death. Yes, Mary was certainly blessed among women. She was used by God in a unique and unrepeatable way. She was a woman of great humility and faith and worthy of our imitation. But she too was a sinner in need of a savior. She always points us to her son because she knew her true, his true identity before anyone else. So all of that is my first and longest point. The birth of Christ reminds us that God is imminent to the humble. But the birth of Christ also reminds us that God judges the ungodly. Look at verses 51 through 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Here, Mary is, I believe, getting to the heart of what Christmas is about. You see, the coming of Christ into the world was not just about rescuing people from destruction, although that is glorious. It was also about displaying God's power and his judgment. This is an aspect of Christmas that is often overlooked. The birth of Christ was an act of war. It was God invading space and time. It's the Navy SEALs sneaking into enemy territory under cover of night. It's the light of the world shining in the darkness. It's truth and beauty and goodness coming to overturn deception and death. Mary mentions three kinds of people for whom the coming of Christ is judgment. First, verse 51, God has shown strength with his arm and he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. One of the purposes of Christ's birth is to display the strength and power of God. This girl, Mary, was a virgin and she was pregnant. Don't let that escape you. That can only be accomplished by divine, miraculous power. Do you ever think about why we don't talk about this more? I mean, all of Christ's miracles are amazing. But outside of the resurrection, I don't know of any other miracle that is more amazing or more scandalous than the birth, the virgin birth of Christ. The creation of a human being from the union of two people is an amazing wonder by itself, though we are used to it. But for God to create life in the womb of a girl purely by divine intervention, and for that child to be the savior of the world, and for those events to be recorded in a book, and for that book to be passed down from generation to generation until it reaches our ears, and for us to experience the saving power of this Messiah... How could this ever become dull to us? How could these truths ever fail to move us? If these things don't excite us and move us to worship, it is not because the truths have grown dull. It's because our hearts have grown hard and proud. Those who are proud think they have no need for God, certainly no need for a Savior. The proud man boasts in his wisdom, his own status, his own resources. But God scatters the proud. God shows the world that to trust in man is folly and to think that we can live without him will only lead to death and destruction. Pray today that the strength of God would soften your heart and that you would burn with love for Christ. 
So we see that God scatters the proud. The second, verse 52, we see that God brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. Again, God is turning the tables, right? Who has the power in our world? Those who sit in authority, those who sit on thrones, whether actual thrones or figurative thrones. But when Christ came, he came with a greater authority. He truly was Lord at his birth. We know that God is about to fulfill thousands of years of history with the birth of Christ. This baby will become the most significant human being ever to walk the face of the earth. And how is God choosing to display his power here? In a couple poor Middle Eastern women in the hill country of Judah. The Messiah is not born to a queen He's not born in a palace. He's not clothed in the finest robes. He's born to a poor single girl in a cattle stable, wrapped in swaddling cloths and placed in a manger. And yet, isn't this just like God? Isn't this exactly the way God does things all throughout the Bible? He never does things the way we would do them. He never rescues his people the way we expect. God's ways are not our ways. He has his own purpose of grace in all that he does. It's those who are humble that God exalts. If you want to be used by God in a mighty way, you don't need to make yourself stronger or better. You just have to need him more. This is the great paradox of the Christian faith. We become more by becoming less. We must decrease so God might increase. His power and his might are displayed in our weakness and in our need for him. So God brings down the mighty from their thrones. And third, God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. Again, God turns the tables. Those who are rich in the eyes of the world seem to have it all. They can buy almost any material possession they want. They can buy protection for themselves and those possessions. They can buy themselves into fame and fortune. They can buy themselves out of trouble. They can buy themselves into relationships and into authority. But again, we see Mary praising God. In sending Christ, God has chosen to exalt the poor and the lowly. Mary was not rich. In fact, it would seem that she and Joseph were extremely poor, given the sacrifice that they gave later in Luke chapter 2. She understood the gift of Christ as another way God displays his extravagant power and love toward those who are the least deserving. God does not value the things the world values. God is no respecter of persons. He does not show favoritism. God's purposes are bigger than that. He chooses people not based on their status or abilities, but based on his own purpose of bringing glory to himself. So, how did Mary view the first Christmas? She saw it as God flipping the script. God chose to defy the wisdom of the world by scattering the proud bringing down the mighty and sending the rich away empty. Think about this in your own life. Don't we see God doing this all around us? We can all think of times in our lives when we looked at our circumstances and thought, there's no way God is in this. There's no way this is going to work out. Nothing that's happening in my life makes sense. And yet the Lord provides what we need. He turns it for his glory. He chooses to use us in the midst of our weakness and failings and our confusion. One specific way I want to encourage us with this today is this. I want us to stop comparing ourselves to one another. When you look around at other people and you see their gifts and their abilities What is your response? Do you tend to get jealous? Maybe you wish you were more like that person. 
this is a tendency, uh, this is a tendency that I see in, in all people, but I see it in Christians maybe more, maybe more than I, than I see it in, in non-Christians. Maybe when I, see, when I say Christians, I'm probably looking mostly at myself. Our tendency to look at other people and to begin to wonder, you know, maybe I should be more like that person or whatever that person is doing is better than what I'm doing or look at the gifts that they have. I wish I had that. We don't have to make ourselves better in order for us to be useful to God and to his kingdom and to his work. Like I said before, we just have to need him a lot. As we approach Christmas, let's remember that our identity is secure in Christ. It's not wrapped up in our abilities or the things that we can do or can't do. We belong to him. This aspect of Christmas, that this cute little baby Jesus comes to bring judgment to the world, judgment on the proud, judgment on the mighty, judgment on the rich, this this kind of makes people uncomfortable, right? We, we love the idea of a peaceful, quiet Christmas Eve night with snow falling and the street lights ablaze and the friends and family indoors by the fire and the camera kind of panning away and everyone's inside and everything's lit up and the fire's going and everyone's having a wonderful Christmas Eve time and baby Jesus is sleeping in a manger and no crying he makes, right? Everything is peaceful. And don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make fun of those things. There is a place for peace and family and fun in the Christmas experience. I mean, our house is going to be full of it this week. But if we let the Hollywood version of Christmas influence us too much, we can forget what Jesus said about his own coming. Matthew 10 says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. One of my favorite scenes in the Lord of the Rings books happens in the Two Towers. I don't know if you've read these books. Maybe you've seen the movie. This is after Saruman's army has been defeated. King Theoden, right, is, he's sitting on his horse on the ground, and Saruman is up in his tower. He's, he's been defeated. The battle's over. Even though he's just been defeated, he's trying to convince King Theoden to join forces and obtain the ring and rule over Middle-earth with him. He's still trying. He has a smooth voice, right? He can convince anyone of anything. And Saruman up in his tower says, What have you to say, King Theoden? Will you have peace with me? Come have peace with me and all the aid that my knowledge founded in long years can bring. Shall we make our counsels together against evil days and repair our injuries with such good that our estates shall both become fairer flower than ever before? I say, King Theoden, shall we have peace and friendship, you and I? It is ours to command. Saruman wants peace. Here's King Theoden's response. We will have peace, said Theoden at last. And several of his riders, those who were with him, cried out gladly, Yes, we're going to have peace. Theoden held up his hand. Yes, we will have peace, he said, now in a clear voice. We will have peace when you and all your works have perished in the works of your dark master to whom you would deliver us. You are a liar, Saruman, and a corrupter of men's hearts. You hold out your hand to me, and I perceive only a finger of the claw of Mordor, cruel and old. Even if your war on me was just, and it was not What will you say of the torches in Westfold and the children that lie dead there when you hang from a gibbet at your window for the sport of your crows? Then I will have peace with you. You see, church, Christ has come to bring peace. But the peace he brings is a spiritual nature. How does the Apostle Paul describe the peace that we have? Romans 5, 8. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace we enjoy now is the peace that Mary experienced in her soul and in her spirit. Yes, there will be peace on earth, but only after the deeds of the proud and the mighty and the rich are exposed. Only after the enemy is destroyed once and for all and Christ reigns supreme on earth. At that time, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and every tongue confess that he is Christ the Lord. And last, we see that Mary points to God's faithfulness to his covenant. The last part of Mary's song points us to God's covenant faithfulness to his people. He's helped his servant Israel. This is verses 54 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now put yourself in Mary's shoes. She and all of her Jewish brothers and sisters had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. No doubt she was very familiar with the Old Testament and God's promise to bless Abraham. In fact, Mary's song, which we're looking at, is very similar to the song Hannah sings in the Old Testament when she gave birth to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you put Hannah's song and Mary's song side by side, some of it, some of it is word for word the same. She clearly knew the Old Testament. And what did Gabriel tell Mary about the identity of the Messiah? Back in verses 31 through 33, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary believed the promise of the angel. Mary is proclaiming the covenant faithfulness of God. He is a God who keeps his promises. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and King David. This child in Mary's womb is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament messianic promises. Remember, before the coming of John the Baptist, there had been 400 years of silence. The time when the Old Testament ends to the time of the coming of John the Baptist was about 400 years. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And church, may we not forget that just as Mary looked back at thousands of years of Jewish history and rejoiced at the birth of Christ, so we look back at 2,000 years of Christian history and rejoice with her. Christ has come so that you and I no longer have to face the condemnation of the law. We can now receive adoption into the family of God. Christmas is a time when we remember God's faithfulness to his covenant. Look at the first lines of Mary's song as we finish up. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. If meditation on God's imminence and God's judgment and God's faithfulness does not move us to worship and rejoicing, and we've missed the entire point. That really is what Christmas is about. If we substitute true worship of God in the flesh for friends or family or food or fun, then we miss the glory of God and our souls will be left unsatisfied. Mary's response to God's favor is worship. It's not superficial worship where her mouth honors the Lord, but her, far, her, her, sorry, her heart is far from him. It's a soul worship. It's a spiritual worship. Her spirit rejoices. This is what I long for, church, for you and for me. Isn't this what you want? Have you ever experienced a deep contentment in God despite your circumstances? Have you ever experienced spiritual joy and delight in the midst of hardship and trial? For God to be our supreme treasure, 
when all other earthly treasures are crumbling is what I seek for me and for us more than anything. When our souls magnify the Lord and our spirits rejoice in Christ our Savior, we are doing what we are made to do, and we are doing what satisfies our souls. I want to close today with a quote from Charles Spurgeon in his sermon on the Magnificat. This is what he says about Mary's song. It's kind of a long quote, but um, indulge me for a moment. She is far from being content with mere lip service. Her language is poetic, but she is not satisfied with her language. I have no doubt that her voice was exceedingly sweet, but she does not say anything about that. But she does speak of my soul and my spirit. Oh, dear friends, let us never be satisfied with any kind of worship which does not take up the whole of our, our inner and higher nature. It is what you are within that you really are before the living God. And it is quite a secondary matter how loud the chant may be or how sweet the tune of your hymn or how delightfully you join in it unless your spirit and your soul truly praises the Lord. You can sometimes do this in songs without words. Even he that has no voice for singing can after this fashion, magnify the Lord with his soul and spirit. Church, don't let today go by without turning your attention to our Savior. He is near to us today. In fact, he is here among us by his spirit. Christ has come. The baby has been born of a virgin. He has lived among his people. He has lived a, a righteous and holy life, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and now sits as king of the universe. And he will return again one day to judge the living and the dead. Turn from your sin today. Place your faith in this Savior. He was Lord at his birth, and he is Lord today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ. Lord, what a blessing it is that all around us, we have in this time of year reminders and pointers to Christ. Lord, our culture doesn't even know it, but Father, they are reminding us over and over and over again, look to Jesus. Nothing satisfies our souls like worshiping the one true God. And so, Father, I pray this week that we would meditate on your nearness to us. We would meditate on your judgment of the ungodly. And we would remember your faithfulness to keep your covenant promises. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ. May you be honored in our hearts, in our souls, our spirits this week. In Jesus' name, amen.